Hi, I'm Terry Zabolski, pastor of Grace Community Church in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I'd like to thank you for listening to this week's message. I hope and trust that God's Word is a blessing to you as you live for Him each and every day. Special guest, Jim Douglas. Good morning. Good morning. Um, <clears throat> you know, Aaron was in his testimony said something to the effect that I don't want to boast. And you know, we we get pretty uptight about that as Christians. But in reality, there are two things that a Christian is, is supposed to boast about. It's in Scripture. Uh, Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24 says, Thus says the Lord, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not the rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, who exercises loving kindness, justice and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, Paul clearly said in speaking to the, his disciples at Thessalonica, he said, look, are not you my joy and crown of rejoicing? Some of your translations probably say crown of exaltation. My crown of rejoicing in the presence of the Lord at his coming. So he tells us, last week we were talking about rewards at the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ, and there is another indication uh, from Paul what that crown of rejoicing looks like. It's his disciples. It's you, those who he has impacted for Christ. And we are told to boast about those two things, one, that we know the Lord, and two, that we have disciples. So my question would be, do you have any boast? Don't answer. <laughs> Do you have any boast? Because that's very, very clear in Scripture. Now, again, last week we studied the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat, the reward seat. And all Christians will be there, every last one, for a reward for some service that has been done since you've been a Christian. And that is the sole purpose of the judgment seat of Christ. It is a reward seat. It is a place of exaltation, a place of honor. God is going to honor every believer, every believer. Now, he's going to sort through our works, and those that were worthless to him, we saw in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, um, verse 10, those works that we've done, our Christian service, that were worthless to him are going to burn up. And those works that he deems have eternal value, we will receive a reward for that. And he clearly says that every, every Christian will receive a reward. So the judgment seat of Christ is not something that we're afraid of. It's not something we're apprehensive about. It is a seat of honor, a place of honor. And every believer will be there. Now this morning, this week, we're going to follow up that. Uh, 
<clears throat> with the profile of a servant, the profile of a servant, since it is our Christian service that is going to be evaluated and for which we will be awarded or for which we will have a pile of ashes, uh, since that is the case, we want to look at that issue and see what a servant truly looks like. What does that look like in the mind and heart of God? And to that, for that, we turn to the Word of God. How should people think of us as Christians from God's point of view? So if you take your Bibles, please, and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And while you're turning there, some of you are familiar with the name, and Pennsylvania's a big football state, so you probably are, familiar with the name Amos Alonzo Stagg. He was the renowned founder of American football. And he had a very unique coaching style. Um, anytime there was a lull in the game, a, a, a slow point in the game, he would go to one of his bench sitters, one of the guys that didn't get in the game often, and he would pose a hypothetical situation to him. He said, now look, son, this one day he went to his third-string quarterback. He said, son, there are 10 seconds to go in the game. We have the ball on the other team's 12-yard line. It's his second down and uh, one yard to go for the first down. What would you do in this situation? And the boy looked at him with a very, very serious look in his eyes and said, Coach, in that situation, I think I would move down to the other, inch of the other end of the bench so I could get a better look at the play. <laughs> now, we laugh, but it's tragic. Most Christians are bench warmers. Most Christians are bench warmers. And the only difference between many of us is some of us have gotten ourselves in a better position to get a look at the action. God wants you to get off the bench and into the game. You know, the overwhelming profile of a Christian in this age is one of service. Service. It was Claire Booth Luce who once said, quote, the life of every great man can be summarized in a single sentence. Well, Jesus beat her to that. He beat her to that. Listen to Matthew chapter 20, verses 26 and 27. Whoever wishes to be great among you, let him be your minister. And whosoever wishes to be first among you, let him be your slave. For your servant. Miss Luce also said, she said, the life of any great man can be summarized in a single sentence, and that sentence will have an action verb at the heart of it. An action verb at the heart of it. So I want to begin by asking you a question. If you had to look back over your life and you had to be totally objective, before God, honest before God. Don't answer this out loud. But if you had to look back over your life and you had to be totally objective, had to be perfectly honest before God, and you had to summarize your life in a single sentence, what would you write? Second question, what would your action verb be? 
very sober in question. Well, again, the overwhelming profile of a Christian in this age is one of service, that of a servant. And the action verb in every Christian's life should be service. So 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, Paul writes, Let a man so think of us, and the us as believers, Christians. The epistles in the New Testament are only written to believers, only. There's not a line written to a lost man. There are some things written about the lost man in them, but the letters are written to believers. And Paul says, God says through Paul, this is how we should want people to think of us, to think of him as an apostle, to think of us as believers. Let a man so think of us as of the ministers, and that word could be translated slaves, but it's much, much bigger than that. And stewards, so you have two S words, stewards, in Greek it's oikonomia, oikos means house, and the rest of the word means law, namos means law. So the steward operates the law of the household, the law of the household. Joseph was the prime human example. Potiphar put all of his business in the hands of Joseph, and Joseph operated his business so thoroughly that Potiphar didn't even know his own business because Joseph was his steward, his steward. Verse 2 says, and it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. What that means is this, God should be able to turn his back on you as a Christian, as his steward, because we are. He should be able to turn his back on you and be fully confident of the outcome of what's going to happen because you are one of his stewards if you're his child. Now, notice what the stewardship concerns. The stewardship concerns the mysteries of God. Don't miss that. So if you're a born-again Christian, God fully expects you to get to know and be able to handle and be a steward of the deep things of his word. That's literally what that says. You are to be a master or a maestro. That's the word I heard in Honduras when a guy was reading this. A maestro or a master of the deep things of God. Question, are you getting to know those things? That's our responsibility as believers to handle those things and to be able to apply them to our lives and help someone else with them, the lives of others. Now, the word we want to focus on this morning is that word, Slaves, slaves. Some of your translations say ministers, slaves. It is the word huperitis, H-U-P-E-R-E-T-E-S, huperitis in Greek. It's a compound word. Hooper means under or underneath. And the rest of the word is the word for an oarsman on a boat or rower on a boat. It is an under rower. An under-roar. And it is a word 
with the world of a history. It says, let a man so think of you as of an underroar who belongs to Christ. Is literally what that says. And that's how, that's the image that we should want people to think of us. And I'll tell you how big it is for you as a Christian. You are in this room this morning as a part of Western civilization as a Christian because of a battle that took place centuries and centuries ago at a place called the Bay of Salamis. And this word underoar described the oarsmen on the boat of the Greek Navy that won that battle. You see, when the Spirit of God writes to people, he normally writes to us in terms that we understand, in terms, in in an analogy that we understand. Remember, we talked about that a little bit last week uh, when we talked about the Isthmian Games and how important that was and how the Corinthians would have known exactly what Paul's illustration was about simply because that was part of their culture. That's just kind of the way God does that, okay? And this is yet another, since this was written to Corinthians, the Corinthians would have known exactly what Paul was talking about when he called for the under-roar or the under-oarsmen. Corinth in that day was a city of about 600,000 people and was located on a tiny little neck of land, an isthmus, that connected southern Greece with northern Europe. And it was a maritime city, seagoing city. The main north-south trade route by land and the main east-west trade route by sea. And there was a battle that took place there centuries and centuries and centuries ago that we never hear or we rarely hear anything about it. And if we do, we probably miss a lot of it. You saw the movie, many of you saw the movie 300 that movie, wonderful movie, okay? Leonidas and, and those guys, that's my kind of stuff. I love that stuff. But <laughs> I do, man. You, you break out the swords and I'm all ears. But, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, but that was only part of the story. I'm waiting for the sequel. Surely they've got, there's got to be a sequel to that. I'm waiting for the sequel because the other part of that was the naval battle that took place in the Bay of Salamis. That was all part of the Greek strategy. And the guy who was the major tactician was a guy by the name of Themistocles. He was really the mastermind behind the, the whole Greek strategy. Leonidas was the king, but this naval officer, Themistocles, was, was the genius behind that whole battle. You know, the Persians had a massive flotilla of ships, the largest navy known to man at that time because they, had, they were an empire. They had conquered a great portion of the world, and so they had this huge, this massive flotilla of ships unseen in that day, unheard of in that day. And, you, you know, in 300, they caused the Persian army which was thousands upon thousands, to be funneled into that narrow little space where their numbers didn't matter? Well, they did the same thing in this naval battle, okay? The, the Persian navy was massive, huge, huge. And if you've been to Athens, you saw more than you thought you saw there 
Because if you turn your eyes to the setting of the sun in the west, you'll see the sun shimmering on a bay of water out there, and that's the Bay of Salamis. And that's where this great naval battle took place. And the Persians with this massive flotilla of ships, and you remember the name Xerxes, who was the emperor of Persia at that time. He had positioned himself high up on a hill where he could watch all the action and see his troops. And he just assumed that they were all going to annihilate the Greeks because they had such massive, overwhelming numbers. And so from his vantage point, he could see what was happening in the Bay of Salamis. Instead of waiting outside the bay, he figured that because they had such overwhelming force that they could just come sailing confidently into the bay and attack the Greeks and wipe them out. Well, the Persian ships were very wide, flat bottom ship. They had sailed for great distances, so they were really heavy. They had all of the supplies and those things on them as well. And they had one set of oars on each side. The Greeks, on the other hand, and you know the history of that, the Greeks were wise, very wise. They fashioned a ship that was tall, set very light in the water, had three sets of oars, 150 oars on one side, 150 oars on the other side. And there were upper oarsmen with long oars, middle oarsmen with medium-length oars, and then lower oarsmen, and that's the under oar. That's the galley slave, strapped into the bottom of the ship. Well, the Greeks, the Persians come sailing confidently into the bay, and Themistocles had devised a strategy where they waited in the most narrow strait of the bay. And the Persians came sailing in, and when they did, the Greek ships, each one took, took the lead on a Persian ship and went straight for it, nose to nose. Well, the Persians thought, well, what, what's going on here? If they ram us, we win immediately because we got the bigger, heavier ships. Well, the Greeks not only built this lightweight ship, but they militarized the front of it with metal to a sharp point like a cutting knife. And at the last second, they veered off to the right and went down and, and pulled in their oars and sheared off all the Persian oars. <laughs> and since they could maneuver quickly, they quickly turned around, came down, sheared off the other side. So the Persians were sitting ducks. And it was so they, they became so disoriented that they totally broke ranks and started ramming into one another. And the Greeks just wiped them out, pursued them out of there. And you are in Western civilization today because of that naval battle that we never hear anything about. And it's important to you because you're a Christian. Because the Christian gospel is what shaped and structured Greek civilization. No matter what it's doing today, it was toned and shaped by the Christian gospel. And you are in this room today as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ because of that naval battle that happened centuries and centuries ago that you never hear anything about. And if you want to be biblical about it, it is the background to the book of Esther. It is the reason that Persian king called that feast so he could investigate what happened since he had such a massive force there and the Greeks beat him down? That's the reason that feast was called. You see, it's almost impossible for a glib American to appreciate our history. 
Brother Gilbert's a history teacher, so he, he can appreciate it. <laughs> it's almost impossible for a glib American to appreciate our history. Man, we have an incredible heritage if we would just dig into it and study it. Incredible heritage. You know, we don't have an, any idea what's going on in the world today. Any idea. Every Sunday that dawns, 1,100 new churches meet that did not meet the week before in the third world. 1,100. Professions of faith now, some 85,000 per day. I mean, God's on a big-time move in the East. You know, we were in China the last couple of years or last three years or so, and it's just incredible to see what God is doing out there. You know, there isn't any American flag draped over the throne of God. God's not an American. <laughs> we lose sight of that. We, we just assume that surely, you know, old glory's flying right there. <laughs> but it's not. It's not. You're here as a believer instead of under oriental government and control because of what happened back there. Thank God the Greeks won. Thank God. So God didn't save you to make you happy. God didn't save you to make you healthy. You know, people look at Isaiah 53 and say, hey, you know, there's the healing right there. No, Isaiah 53 is about the healing of your sin-sick soul. Okay? If God chooses to heal, it's for his, his glory and praise the Lord. And we have every right and every reason to beg him to do that. But that's his call. That's his call. We're to make our petitions known. That's his call. So he didn't save you to make you healthy. He didn't save you to make you wealthy. He saved you to stuff you down in the bottom of the ship in anonymity. In anonymity. As an under-roar, living life in the bottom of the ship. So that person, that slave down there, that person is a slave. He's not a free man. He's captured outside, dragged in, locked by a little ankle, uh, a bracelet around his ankle, and locked to the oars, and he sits there in that seat, and he rows till death. He never leaves the ship alive. He has no will of his own, no resources of his own, no schedule of his own. His boss calls all the shots. Now, that's what Paul said. We are to want people to think of us by that picture. As believers, as an under-oarsman, an under-roar who belongs to Christ with no rights, no will, no schedule, no resources of his own. He didn't even know when the ship, where the ship was going. He didn't know when it had arrived. <laughs> he didn't look at himself in comparison to his other fellow oarsmen to compare himself to see how well he was doing in comparison to them. Man, we get busy doing that as believers, don't we? Now, this is the profile of a Christian. It's what God says. His only focus was to keep his eyes on the cadence captain. In the front of the ship, there was a cadence captain. 
who sat high above everybody else. And he called the cadence for the stroke, much as you see the skulls that people that, that are very popular in the Ivy League rowing. He called the cadence. And that slave's only focus was to keep his eyes on that cadence captain. He was to get his oar in joint venture with all the other oarsmen, not by looking at them. He never looked at them. Not by looking at himself to see how well he was doing. He was to get his oar in joint venture with all the other oarsmen by keeping his eyes on that cadence captain. Those who paratoy, <laughs> plural, had a cadence determined by a captain. Psalm 37, 23 says, The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. But it's better than that. The stops of a good man are orchestrated by the Lord. It's even better than that. The stumblings of a good man are overcome by the Lord, but it's all according to his cadence. His cadence. So here are the points of the message. And that was the introduction. Uh, <laughs> and they all begin with the letter C. as a literary device to give you a place to hang your thoughts. Number one, their cadence was determined by somebody else. That's an analogy of the church. The church is the body of Christ. And our service, what we do as Christians, is to be in concert with the head. The head tells the body what to do. You know, this body doesn't have any intelligence below my chin. Now, some of you might argue that it doesn't have any above it either, but, but it has no intelligence above my chin. None whatsoever. Because the head calls the cadence. Just as the head of the church, Christ, calls the cadence. This body operates by a rhythm, just as the body of Christ should operate by a rhythm. And that rhythm is dictated by the Lord Jesus Christ. He decides what we do, how we do, where we do, when we do, and who to do it with. Because he is the head. Question, what if, what if God gave us the kind of body that we give him? What if this foot, which is a member of my body, decided that it was just going to go walking away? <laughs> going to go over there and do something. And the head hasn't given that command. We'd be in pretty bad shape if God gave us the type of body that we typically give him. Pretty bad shape. Because we have renegade members of the body all over the place. Well, honey, you know, I, I think that I, we're just not going to go uh, to fellowship on Sunday because... We need to drive down to Gettysburg and, and see Aunt May, okay? Well, you know, you got six other days to see Aunt May. Wasn't important to you then. <laughs> Wasn't important to you then. Say, oh, he's meddling now. Yeah, I am. <laughs> and you see, 
We take that awful glibly, but here's the deal. You will be responsible for the truth you should have heard if you were there to hear it. Man, that's a bombshell. It's true. It's true. You are the body of Christ. God only, only works through his body. And that body functions according to the cadence that is called by the captain, the Lord Jesus Christ. Same thing is true with us. Number two, their cooperation was determined by somebody else. Three sets of oars, 150 oars on each side, and they're all rowing exactly at the same stroke. They're all in sync together because there's a common focus on the captain. Not that they're looking at one another, not that they're looking at themselves, not that they're trying to keep time in their heads. No, they're rowing in sync because they're all focused on the call of the captain. Same is to be true with us as believers. Number three, their commitment was determined by somebody else. They simply had to trust the captain. They didn't know where they were. They didn't know when they would arrive. They didn't know where they were going. They simply had to trust the captain. Number four, their continuation was determined by somebody else. They were committed for life. They didn't come out of the ship alive. They were carried out dead. Now, this is the profile of a Christian. You know, we talk about preachers retiring I don't know what in the name of heaven that is. <laughs> you won't find that in this book. You won't find where any of them retired. Didn't happen. But we have that today because we take whatever the world does and we try to dress it up and Christianize it and say, well, you know, if that's what's good for them, that's what's good for us. And it's not. You don't find that in Scripture of someone who represents Jesus Christ retiring from that vocation. Doesn't happen. I challenge you to find it. Doesn't happen. You say, well, what about Elijah? He was caught up. He didn't retire. <laughs> he was caught up. So that one doesn't, doesn't fly. They continued till death. They were carried out alive. I challenge you to look at the lives of the apostles and go back and read some of the first century historians, people like Casuto and Josephus and guys like that, and they documented or chronicled where those men died, where they went, what they did, and where they died. And the reason it's so important and informative to us is those Historians, many of them were non-Christians, and yet what they wrote is in dead sync with the Bible. Spot on with the Scriptures. This thing wasn't done in a vacuum. So their continuation was determined by somebody else. Number five, their condescension was determined by somebody else. The slaves received no honor whatsoever. Only the captain was visible to the outside world. Only the captain. You see, so many of us get wrapped around having our name in lights or notoriety of somebody. 
God's not interested in that. Not at all interested in that. And nor should we be. Because our focus is to keep our eyes on the captain. All the honor goes to the captain. He's the only one that should be visible to the outside world. We should seek to decrease, as John says, and let him increase. I am to use my vocabulary only to describe his. He has said some specific things in his word, and it's my job to dig that out and use my vocabulary to describe his, not to invent anything. Like the word revival. Say, what? <laughs> you won't find that word in the New Testament anywhere. You will not find a concept of it anywhere in the New Testament. It's not there. It's not there. It's an Old Testament standard where the Holy Spirit came and went. He'd come and empower a man for a purpose of God, and then he'd go away when that purpose was completed. In the New Testament, he came to stay. We don't need revived. If our walk grows cold with the Lord, we need repentance, not revival. You can't be made alive again. That's already been done for you, Ephesians 2 tells you. You were quickened to life in Christ. You can't be made alive but once. You can't be revived. So we don't need revival. If we got a problem, we need repentance. <laughs> so, man, that's a bombshell. Yet you hear more about revival in, our, in the institutional church than you do anything else. Lord, send a revival. Send a revival. I had pastors telling me, because I work with pastors all the time. That might surprise you. But <laughs> I, said, Lord, I said, Jim, we've been praying for revival. We've been praying, begging God for revival, and he hasn't sent it. In the name of heaven, why would God be so reluctant to send, some, send something if that were his plan? No, we're to walk in the Spirit. If that wall grows cold, we need repentance. We don't need revival. That's why there's no New Testament standard for it. You know what revival is? You can find it in Habakkuk chapter 2. You read that for yourself, but... Habakkuk was praying, Lord, Lord, revive your people. Turn your people back to yourself. Revive your people. And it didn't seem like anything was happening. Okay? And finally, God answered him. And he said, Habakkuk, I did show up. I sent the Chaldeans to consume you. Whoa. <laughs> so when we pray for revival, do we really know what we're asking for? Revival is as much the judgment of God as it is the joy of God. Now, by that standard, do you really want a revival? <laughs> I said, well, a revival is people come into Christ. Revive. The very structure of the word says that they had to be once alive. People that are coming to Christ have never been alive in Christ. If they had, they would still be alive in Christ. So that's, that doesn't match the standard for revival at all. At all. They need, they need the life of Christ. They need to be brought to life, quickened to life. And the only way that's going to happen, Jesus said, no man comes to me unless the Father draws him. So our main responsibility should be to be on our faces before God, asking him to draw them. Now, I normally teach on Wednesday nights when I'm in town, discipling. And uh, this, this Wednesday night, I purposely didn't do that so I could come and, 
and be at the prayer meeting. And it was just a wonderful, wonderful thing to sit with other believers in the same fellowship where I am and where my family lives and pray about all the concerns in the body. We had a very comfortable crowd. There were seven of us there. Okay? Our church will get on a big-time move when we get serious about getting on our faces before God. We can't preach people to life. We can't even pray people to life. Prayer has to be open to God so that he acts. What's quiet in here now? (laughs) It just happens to be the truth. You know, some of the things I say, I like to say indoors where there are no rocks. Because, you know, stoning is still pretty popular in some places. (laughs) I had a disciple with me and was teaching in Mozambique. and, And we had, it was a very, very stern message. And the break, he said, Jim, he said, do you realize that those are spears leaned up against the building outside? <laughs> that was Daryl McClyman. Some of you know him. <laughs> but it just happens to be the truth. Jesus said, no man comes to me unless the Father draws him. So we need to be beseeching him. So their condescension was determined by someone else. The slaves received no honor whatsoever. And this is the profile of a servant. This is how we as Christians are to want people to think of us. That's what Paul says. Where are the Christians that are living by that standard? Where are the Christians that are living like this? That we are not only content, but we are eager to be known by that lifestyle. A slave who belongs to Christ. A slave, you know, some of your translations say ministers, ministers, but the original text is, is huperitus. That word minister is diacono, diaconoi. It's the word for deacon, where we get our word deacon from. Dia means through, the rest of the word means dust. A deacon is a dust kicker. <laughs> it's a man who's so hot hearted to get to the point of service in God's interest that he kicks up a column of dust behind his feet on his way to serve. Man, in most churches, they're a clout functionary. It just happens to be the truth. <laughs> you know, I was, I was teaching that in a church with my disciple Herb Hodges in Arkansas somewhere, and, and, I, and I made that statement, and, and the head deacon wasn't there that night. And, and apparently, somebody called him. This lady called him uh, and, said, <laughs> and said, you ought to have been there to hear that preacher last night. He said, you deacons weren't nothing but dirt. <laughs> now, is that what I said? <laughs> But see, communication is not what I'm saying. It's what you're hearing. (laughs) And that's what she heard. (laughs) Service. That's the overwhelming profile of a Christian in this age is one of service. He's to be a servant. This is how we're to want people to think of us. The word is huperitus. 
a strapped-in galley slave living life at the bottom of the ship. Now, if you would, let's look at the profile of a servant in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. This will be our last stop. Philippians chapter 2. This, is, this chapter is about the lead characteristic of a servant, and that is humility. Humility. Humility comes from the Latin word humus. It's the word for dirt or earth. And humility is not what I thought it was early in life. Not at all. Most people think that humility is a posture, you know, you this cowed down, you know, uh, posture of humility. That's not it at all. Not it at all. Humility is honest realism. It is accepting what God says about you to be true. If you're a capable person, it is not humble for you to say you can't do anything. That's not humility. That's a lie. You know, and we have this Mock false humility everywhere, and God has to be sick of it. You know, it's the Uriah Heap syndrome. You know, Charles Dickens' novel, Uriah, the character Uriah Heap says, I as humble I is. And humble was spelled with an apostrophe, no H. <laughs> as humble I am. Yeah. And, and, and that's not God's idea of humility at all. Humility is honest realism where you simply accept the truth about what God says about you. If you're a capable person, it is not proud or vain to say that you're a capable person. It's a lie if you say that you aren't. That's not humility. You know, I mean, we, we've, it's amazing what we've done with that. Just amazing what we've done with that. It's like the two farmers that were talking and one said... Brother, the Lord sure has made a beautiful place out of a beautiful farm out of your place. And the other one said, Yeah, and you should have seen it when he had it all to himself. <laughs> it just happens to be the truth. You pray like it all depends on him because it does, and you work like it all depends on you. Because without you, he's not gonna act. It's not gonna happen. By his own self-imposed reduction, he has determined not to act in this world except through his body, us, the church, believers. You've never had a need from the Lord where a long arm came down from the heavens and said, here, Mark, there it is. That's what you need. Didn't happen that way. No. God uses his body. Prayer changes people's heart and people change things. God uses his body to work in this world. He came into you to walk around on your feet, kneel with your knees, help with your hands, love with your heart, because we are his body. The means by which he is functional. Another big issue that we've 
we've misconstrued is the word ego. Nothing at all wrong with having an ego. Ego is the universal and biblically recognized word for personality. So if your ego disappears, you disappear. Because that's the word for personality. The problem is, the problem comes in in what you do with your ego, where you shape it, where you bend it. If you turn the drives of your ego back on yourself, that's egocentrism. That's sin. God the Father used that word about himself. God the Son used that word about himself. God the Holy Spirit used that word about himself hundreds of times. It's the word for personality. It's egocentrism that gets us in trouble. You see, you got to be very technical with the word of God or we can be misled. I mean, you can't read the letters of Paul without knowing that that guy had a massive, massive ego. He had a massive personality. Massive. You can't read his letter. There was none of this Mr. Milk Toast mildness with him. Oh, as humble I is. <laughs> no, there was none of that. I mean, you're pretty strong if you stand in front of a group of guys that carry swords and say you're a brood of vipers. <laughs> I like that guy. And can you imagine with all the things that happened to Paul? Maybe that's why some of those things happened. <laughs> but in Philippians chapter 2, and I'll give you a brief outline of the chapter, of the chapter verses 1 through 4, you have an exhortation to humility. An exhortation to humility. In verses 12 through 16, you have the exercise of humility. The exercise of humility. And in verses 5 through 8 and 17, through the end of the chapter, you have examples of humility. Examples. Now, verse 25 introduces us to a man by the name of Epaphroditus. And man, was he some kind of warrior for the Lord. Some kind of warrior for the Lord. Paul is the one that sang his praises. We wouldn't have known anything about him had the Holy Spirit not inspired Paul to write about him. Just a tremendous, tremendous warrior. And he said, receive him in the Lord and hold such in reputation. In other words, give him the respect that he's due. For he was sick and nigh unto death, not regarding his life, to supply your lack of service toward me. That phrase, not regarding his life, that's one word in Greek. And it's the word for a gambler taking a paradise in his hands, closing his fist over them, shaking them up, and throwing them down. That's literally what the word means, not regarding his life. This man, as it were, closed his hand over his own life shook it up and threw it down in the interest of Christ. And he continued, even though he knew it may cost him his life. Because he didn't count his life worth anything apart from the service of Christ. Now, where are the Christians that live like that? Grab your passport and follow me. I'll take you and show you some. They live that way every day. Every single day. 
you know. We have freedoms in this country that we take for granted, and as a result, because we take them for granted, we handle them loosely, and we don't take advantage of those freedoms the way we should. Nobody wants to kill us for proclaiming the name of Christ here. You would be shocked at how active and alive Christianity gets when the stakes are that high. I mean Christianity gets busy when the stakes are that high. When somebody might want to kill you for it, then the real thing comes out. Most people aren't willing to die for a lie. Most people aren't willing to die for something they don't truly believe. So when the stakes go up, it's just amazing to see how those Christians march forward in the name of Christ. Awesome. So where is that kind of Christianity? You know, I was old enough to die the day I was born. And when he's done with me, I don't want to be here anyway. I want out of here. The minute he's done, I, my prayer is that he'll take me. Now, part of that prayer is that I won't be eaten alive. You know, that's uncool. <laughs> I don't want to be eaten alive. That, that's just not cool at all. Uh, you know, you'd hate to watch that, right? <laughs> but, but other than that, I'm cool with it. <laughs> it's going to elevate me into the presence of the Lord forever. And guess what? Because of involvement in disciple-making and training and equipping others, then even after that big event, which won't be one anymore, but even after that big event, my residuals will go on and on and on through those men and women that I've impacted for Christ. So I'll get to sit there and watch. The bank account grow higher and higher, the crowns grow higher and higher, and I'll have more to cast at the feet of Jesus. Posthumously. <laughs> Back to verse 3 in our text. It says, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. You know, strife tears another person down. Vainglory builds yourself up. Paul said, let nothing be done with that spirit. <clears throat> that ethic is so far beyond us that he's exposing to us here because we're too insecure. We're too insecure. We can't show that kind of humility because we're so insecure. You know, the apostles were the same way. In John 13, where Jesus uh, washed their feet, he wasn't teaching them to wash feet. He was teaching them humility. I mean, we have a lot of churches that get busy washing feet. I guess if you want to do that, that's okay. <laughs> but, but we're not commanded to do that in this book. No, he was teaching them humility. You remember, they had just finished arguing over who would be the greatest. And because of that argument, they weren't about to get down and wash each other's feet. You know, because that, that was reserved for the lowest slave in the household. So the master himself got up and girded himself with a towel and did it to show them humility. I mean, a couple times in that text in John 13, he said, you don't know what I'm doing, but you'll know later. Well, if he was teaching them to wash feet, they would know. He could, they could see that. No, he was teaching them humility. And that's what this chapter is about. 
said, in lowliness of mind. Lowliness of mind. You know, that's the word for this rug right here. It's the word for tapestry. That word lowliness. This means that a Christian is so secure in his elevation of being in Christ that he can volunteer to get down and let somebody else walk on him in the interest of Christ. Because he doesn't have anything he can lose. He's secure. He's endowed. He has a legacy. Paul says he's already seated with Christ in the heavenlies. He's an ambassador for Christ. So he can volunteer in his security to get down and let, it, let somebody else walk on him if it'll help him take a step toward Christ. Jesus was so high in his position as God that he could volunteer to come all the way down and sacrifice himself for us because he knew he couldn't lose anything. He was that secure. You see, we're so insecure, we, we can't do that. We can't volunteer to get down. We can't volunteer to interrupt our schedule for somebody else in Christ's interest. We can't volunteer to do that. Is this a disturbing ethic or what? So how'd it go today? Oh, it was wonderful. There was a riot after I was done. <laughs> they were just so upset over the Word of God. <laughs> now, this is the message of Philippians 2. Jesus didn't have to hoard his equality with God because he was so certain of it that he couldn't lose it. So he volunteered to come down. And that's the profile of what a Christian is to be. A Christian is so secure that he can say, well, I don't necessarily agree, but if it'll help you take a step toward Christ, walk on me. Take a step here. Get down and walk on me. That's security. That's one of the reasons God teaches us in his word the security of our salvation because insecure people will only serve themselves. They will never serve another. They will never fully serve Christ. If you're insecure about your salvation and the outcome of it, you're busy serving yourself, making sure that you've got it and you're holding on to it. The gospel is designed to set us totally free in self-forgetfulness so that we can be about helping someone else. As his ambassadors, you know, we bruise each other and cause friction and factions and all of that stuff and try to gain control that we were never to have anyway. Anyway. Now, I want you to consider this great human example of humility. And, and in my measured opinion, it's, it's probably the third greatest example of humility in the Bible, Jesus being first, Paul probably being second, and then this man Epaphroditus, which we never hear anything about. He had gotten sick, had come to deliver a letter to Paul, got sick, and Paul sent him back to his folks, and he said he sent him back because this man was concerned with the sorrow that the people would have if they heard he was sick. He wasn't concerned with himself at all. He was about somebody else. Verse 17. 
It says, Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all. Now, there are several different translations of that that expose it better. The New American Standard Version says, But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. What does that mean, that drink offering, a libation offering? You know, this is something that we read right past looking for meteor territory in our Bible reading. A drink offering. Imagine we have here a Jewish altar of sacrifice. And an animal is brought in, a bull, a bullock, to be sacrificed as a burnt offering. The entire thing is to be consumed by fire. Nothing is to be spared. And they bring that thing in, and they slit his throat on the altar, and they have built this raging fire that starts to rage under that big animal, sprawling animal. And the grease from that animal, from the fat, begins to pop and sizzle in the, the, over the fire. And they always added something. They always took a cup of sweet wine, and they poured it on that big sprawling animal sacrifice as the fire is consuming in him consuming him what's that for it was a picture of their desire to make the sacrifice have a pleasant aroma in the nostrils of god so that wine that they poured on it instead of getting the stench of burning flesh you would get a fragrant aroma from the wine that they poured on it that's what Paul is saying here. You know what he's saying? Who made the greatest sacrifice, the ox or the cup of wine? Tell me, no trick question. What was the biggest? The, the ox was clearly the biggest sacrifice. No cup of wine died. The ox made the biggest sacrifice. Between Paul and the Philippians, Whose was the greater sacrifice, theirs or Paul's? Man, you just read some of the things that happened to Paul. In your spare time, in your reading, read 2 Corinthians chapter 11, category of some 35 different sufferings. And if anyone in this room were caught between any two of those commas, it would wipe you out. He lived that way all the time, smashed down coming back up, beaten five times with rods, three times within one stripe of death, marooned in the sea, hanging on a piece of driftwood. I mean, constantly Paul had these sufferings for Christ. And he said, with this, he's telling the, the Philippians, I will consider your service, your act of service, acts of service, greater than mine even though we both know it's not so. Now, that's humility. I'll consider you Corinthians, your service. I'll be the drink offering, and I'll consider you to be the bullock. No matter what they did, they couldn't have gotten up to Paul's level of sacrifice. No matter what they did. But he agreed to get down. I deliberately choose in my security to honor your sacrifice above mine, though we both know it's not so. Now, that's humility. Well, <clears throat> a closing illustration. 
Out in California in uh, Yosemite National Park, I had the occasion to be out there working just recently. There's a point that we went to, and I don't remember the name of the point, but at that point you could look out and you see Half Dome Mountain, uh, which is a big deal to mountain climbers. And they, it takes two and a half to three weeks to climb this thing. And that area is just beautiful. I mean, it's so beautiful that overnight you forget how beautiful it was. Uh, the next day you're just stunned again. And this is a favorite haunt for very serious mountain climbers. And it takes two and a half to three weeks to climb that thing. And it's like, it's almost a sheer drop of 3,000 feet. It's just incredible. Um, in the summer, or the fall, rather, of 1991, Mike Corbett and Mark Wellman scaled Half Dome Mountain. And it took the full three weeks for them to do that. And a newspaper uh, reporter covered that climb, chronicled that climb. And he wrote, there's great concern for the safety of and physical well-being of Mike Corbett, quote, Yosemite's most experienced climber. He's suffering extreme numbness in his arms, is totally exhausted and dangerously near dehydration. Part of the climb required these men to swing out from the face of the mountain on ropes in order to get above an overhang. And that doesn't seem like a big deal to experienced climbers. That happens. And now the rest of the story. Mark Wellman is a paraplegic. This climbing enthusiast requires help. Enter Mike Corbett, enter loaning and leaning. The reporter went on. So there was no wonder Mike Corbett's physical condition was deteriorated because he climbed the mountain twice. No, he climbed the mountain four times. He climbed up, set the pins, climbed down, and helped Wellman pull himself up hand over hand, climb back down, clean up the, the rigging, then climb back past him and set the pins for the next increment of climbs. He climbed the mountain four times. Question, did Mike Corbett give up any freedom? For three weeks, he climbed at another man's pace and another man's style and another man's schedule. He gave up the only freedom he had. He deliberately, purposefully, calculatingly knocked himself out for another man. Listen, go back down to the hull of the ship, the rib cage of the ship, the lowest galley slave. Do you know what he existed for? It was to deliver somebody else to their final destination. That's all. He ate, he slept, he breathed, he rode for one purpose. That was to deliver someone else to his final destination. Now, Jesus said, the Holy Spirit says, that's how we're to want people to think of us as believers. That's the profile of a Christian. Continuing the newspaper article, quote, with the help of the best climber around, Mark Wellman made rock climbing history by being the first paraplegic to complete 
such a claim. Now listen, I wrote my thoughts out on this. 2,000 years ago, the greatest mountain climber in the universe climbed an awful, awful mountain for me. The name of the mountain wasn't Half Dome, Calvary. The place of the skull. And that cross, the shaft of that cross was shoved down in the top of that skull. That tells you what God thinks about human intelligence apart from him. Jesus climbed that awful mountain and then mounted the cross. We heard songs about the cross this morning. You know, we ought to get cross country to the cross as fast as possible, always. Number two, in recent years, and there are people in this room that fall into this category, some other lesser climbers have also climbed some lesser, lower, and more local mountains for me. Number three, now I want to climb the mountain for somebody else. <clears throat> Number four, I want to train other climbers to climb the mountain. And so train them that they, in turn, will spend themselves and their lives climbing for somebody else and, indeed, training other climbers. It was Tenzing Norgay, the Sherpa Indian guide, who led the expedition for Sir Edmund Hillary's first successful ascent of Mount Everest. When he came back down, he had instant notoriety, notoriety and fame, and a reporter interviewed him and said, how'd you get into this business? I want to give you his exact words, and with this I close. He said, when I was a young man, a veteran climber took me aside and built into me a love for mountain climbing. Since that time, I have spent my entire life climbing mountains, indeed, training others to climb. And then the reporter said, as an afterthought, he said, and it is an unwritten rule among us that climbers always help each other. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet. Before you do, let me get lessons for our lives because our pastor does that, so I want to keep some semblance of that. Better do that. I'll be accountable to him. <laughs> lessons for our lives. In his final words before ascending back to heaven, our Lord gave each believer clearly articulated commands for service. He said, go everywhere. And turn every person into exactly what I've turned these 12 men to, into disciples. That was our command, the Great Commission. Everything else will be taken care of. We don't have to worry about anything else. God will handle everything else. If we'll just do that. Number two, like those who paratoy, as Christians... You must obey the commands of the captain. The captain. Their sole focus was to keep their eyes trained on him and obey his command. It would have been total chaos if they did otherwise. 
Number three, like those who paratoy, your will, rights, schedule, resources must be totally surrendered to following the commands of the captain. You see, the words Lord and no do not belong in the same sentence. It's a contradiction. As Lord, he has the right to control you, the responsibility to correct you, and the resources to compensate you. So no and Lord don't belong in the same sentence. Number four, like those who paratoy, your service is divinely designated to help spiritually get somebody else to their destination in Christ, whether they're currently saved or lost. As a believer, you are spiritually more advanced in God's word and living the Christian life than somebody you know, than somebody you know. And as such, you have a responsibility to help that climber and to train that climber. You attach him to yourself, and you climb the mountain with him, bring him up with you. And on the way, you teach him how to train other climbers. It's called multiplication. It'll outstrip addition every single time. Number five, if you're not a Christian, you too are an under-rower. You're strapped in, galley slave, in the bottom of the wrong boat, and it's sinking. You say, what must I do? Turn to Jesus Christ today. Repent of your sins. Repent means to make a U-turn, a change of mind that results in a change of action. And turn to Jesus Christ and ask him to come in and just take over. No elaborate formula for that. Just ask him to come in and take over. And you can be a slave in the household of Christ with eternal dividends. Appreciate the way you've listened. Um, the past couple weeks, a lot of stuff thrown at you. A lot of stuff from God's Word. Um, but that's exactly the kind of stuff He expects us to know and to orient our lives around and to act on. <laughs>